When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Today, ladies and gentlemen, is a significant day in the modern history of this great nation. Today is the day that the statue of Winston Churchill is once more open to view after being closed off to the public gaze since last weekend. And the reason for its return to the fray is a very important one. Today is the 80th anniversary of the French resistance against the Nazis in occupied France during the Second World War. And the presence of French President Emmanuel Macron in London has caused Boris Johnson and our government to do the right thing. After all, how bizarre would it be to commemorate the day General de Gaulle broadcast a message from Great Britain to his fellow countrymen and women while covering up the statue of the very man who ensured that France was not enslaved by the German forces of fascism? Isn't it ironic, as some people might say, on the day that we celebrate our common aims and pay tribute to the courage and sacrifice of the French resistance fighters, four of whose survivors are going to be awarded the MBE, isn't it strange that some people in our society would like to airbrush Churchill from our history altogether today, with the help of Anand Menon from UK and a changing Europe, a man that we should have had on long before this, because we just worked out we haven't had him on since the election night last year. We will pay tribute to the things that bind us to Europe, Not necessarily the European Union, but to France, but to Spain, but to Germany, but to Italy, but to Scandinavia, to all of the countries of Europe, and why Europe is such an important part of our history and will be such an important part of our future. It's not going to be a difficult conversation, people. It's going to be a very joyous and a very celebratory conversation as we look ahead after Brexit to what we do. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up later on, we're talking to Esther Cracker, who will be explaining why, as a black conservative woman, she does not support Black Lives Matter as an organisation and we'll bring you the latest on testing, tracing and that new outbreak of COVID-19 over in China from whence it first came. 0344 499 1000. Also, we'll be trying to find out when the pubs are going to be opening and for our homeschooling segment today, we're going to be learning all about how boats float with the science correspondent of The Times. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, a very historic day we're going to be having here in London. President Macron is going to be meeting Prince Charles. He's going to be meeting Boris Johnson. He's going to be going to Downing Street. He's going to be talking about the quarantine uh, between the two countries, France and the UK. There's a kind of weird and strangely kind of loose quarantine working currently at the moment. If you go to France, you're sort of supposed to quarantine yourself. We've got one going on as well. But as we get closer and closer to people thinking about maybe going away, going on holiday for the summer at some point or other, uh, this is going to be quite a significant day, I think, uh, for both leaders of both countries. Let's talk to Anand Menon now from uh, UK in a changing Europe. Anand, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I'm sorry to say that uh, we didn't. We noticed as we thought this. You're just the guy to talk to about this. That we haven't actually seen you since election night, which is an appalling lapse on our part, I have to say. Uh, so and it feels uh, an awfully long time back. I it? know. I know. I mentioned what's happened since I last spoke to you, right? Um, you know, just on that very night, as as we watched the Tories get their 80 seat majority, slightly incredulously, I suppose. Um, you know, Brexit finally happened, and then suddenly the world has changed altogether with COVID 19 uh, and that long kind of. Uh, period of, of lockdown, which appears to be lifting now. But I'm, I'm interested today to talk to you about our role in Europe and, and because the Macron visit, I think, has kind of crystallised for me what it is that we have with Europe. Because if we look back to the days of Charles de Gaulle and this resistance movement and the, the broadcast that was made, and, and ironically, you know, we now uh, have had the news, bad news today that Vera Lynn has died as well. You know, um, mm. it tells me more about what we have with Europe, really, in a way. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. And, you know, to quote our last prime minister, we're leaving the European Union. We're not leaving Europe. We're going to remain a neighbour and we're going to keep working with the individual member states as as well as trying to work with the European Union as a whole. I mean, the French are a case in point. Uh, This year is the 10th anniversary of something called the Lancaster House Treaty, which we signed with a French president, which... Which, made, which laid the ground for some really far-reaching cooperation on defence with the French. And it's things like that, I think, that we have to make sure we keep going with. Yes, exactly right. And also culturally, you know, we talk an awful lot about how, um, yes, we have ties with America and, yes, we are kind of to some extent uh, aligned very closely to, to the English-speaking countries of the world. But we've also had such historic uh, and, and memorable ties with Europe that, that it's, it's impossible really to, to, to lose that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are very, very deep ties between us and particular European uh, countries. If you think in terms of the levels of travel between us, you think about the number of Brits who live in their countries or their citizens who live over here. Yeah, those relations are not going to suddenly disappear overnight. I mean, it's worth noting that for many of those countries, however, they prioritise the stability, safety, well-being of the European Union. Uh, And so they're not going to do us any favours when it comes to the Brexit negotiations. But at the same time, they'll still want to have links and contacts with us. Yes. Well, you see, that's where maybe you and I will have a slight disagreement, because I think that the way that Boris has set out uh, his his conversation so far with Michel Barnier and others, uh, the way that he said that he wants to see a deal done by the end of the summer. um, It seems to me that we have taken back a bit more control of those negotiations. And and some of the signs that are coming out of people inside the EU uh, are much more, I would say, kind of um, or much less aggressive aggressive, shall we say? To an extent, yeah. I mean, I still think, actually, paradoxically, what I'm seeing in the Brexit talks is the fact that the Commission, who are doing the negotiating, are very, very keen to have a deal. But it's the member states who keep saying, actually, you can't compromise on this because this really matters to us. Mm. I still think there could well be a deal. And there could well be a deal done quite soon that is ready to be ratified in the autumn. But both sides are going to have to give some ground. And it's just we just have to wait and see whether they're willing to do that. But I think both sides want a deal. Yes. But let's talk about the French and the British kind of relationship, because, you know, we often hear about the special relationship between the US uh, and the UK. But there's kind of a special relationship in a way between the French and the British, although, you know, yes, we've had our differences. We've had the sort of, uh, you know, the fishing problems. We've we've had the, uh, you know, the beef problems and the CJD problems. We've had the farmers striking. We've had the uh, port workers striking. You know, the French go on strike seemingly no matter what in the summer. Um, How do you see the French and the British? British relationship going forward? Because as you said, there were some defence deals that we were doing together. You know, NATO is still a thing. So, you know, it's 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 hard to break away, I suppose, is what I'm saying. It is. I mean, we've got hundreds of years of history with the French, albeit that some of those years of history were 
were years of war rather than peace between us. But I think both countries have come to realize since the Second World War that they need to work together, particularly in areas like security. Remember, France and the UK are the only two European members of the Security Council. They're the only two European nuclear powers. So we have interests in common that maybe we don't share with some of the other member states in terms of how we perceive our role in the world. And that makes us very natural partners when it comes to foreign policy, I think. And I'm sure both governments will want to see that continue going forward. Yeah, absolutely right. And what about Macron's own position in France at the moment? Because, I mean, like most leaders uh, during this pandemic, uh, he's lost a bit of popularity. He wasn't that popular to begin with. Uh, we saw the Gilets jaunes protests going on, you know, pretty much all of last year. I guess the lockdown has kind of put paid to that to some extent. Um, but, uh, but what about his future? Well, what I would say is I think the crisis in terms of its impact on politics and politicians has only just begun in mm. the sense that the real crunch for political leaders across the world will not so much be the public health crisis, but the scale of the economic crisis that comes out of the lockdown. It will be the perceived effect effectiveness of governments in dealing with that that I think will ultimately shape how their electorates judge them coming out of this. Yes, because all countries have done slightly different things, haven't they? Taken slightly different measures. Generally speaking, though, most governments will be in massive debt. No, absolutely. I mean, all governments have, have spent inordinate amounts of cash at trying to shore up their job market to try and keep the economy ticking over even during lockdown. They're going to have to spend more cash when we come out of this to try and get some of those people who've lost their jobs back into employment. We might see quantitative easing being ramped up both here and in uh, the European Union. So we're going to come out with far larger debts. Yes. But of course, at the same time, in, in a few years' time, we'll have comparative data on which countries did best. And I think that, on, on, in terms of both how, who did best in the public health crisis and who's recovered quickly economically, will be absolutely fundamental to the electoral prospects of lots of these leaders across Europe and indeed in this country. Yes, and I think it will also have a bearing on the trade negotiations with the EU, partly because, you know, this is not a great time uh, to be sort of offering all or nothing uh, and threatening to sort of throw a hissy fit and walk out of the room because everybody's going to need everybody else's help to the best of their ability, aren't they? Well, yeah, and I think that's true on both sides of the channel. I think both Boris Johnson and the European Union recognise that it's better to have a deal than not have a deal. Mm. What we don't yet know for certain is whether they recognise that to the point of being a little bit flexible when it comes to the well-known red lines that each side have painted on the table. Yes. What's your feeling about those red lines, particularly the fishing uh, business, which we've talked about obviously quite a lot over the last few weeks? Um, where does that go, do you think? Well, on fishing, it strikes me that the EU have got a very maximalist position, which is in all other areas of the negotiations, what the EU have said to us is you're leaving. Things can't be the same when you're no longer a member state. But in fisheries, they say you're leaving, but we want exactly the same access to your waters as we had when you were a member state. So it seems to me that the EU is going to have to give some ground over that. They might also have to give some ground over the idea that they want a long-term solution to the quota issue, because I think our government is insisting, partly for sort of political purposes, for appearance purposes, I think, to say we reserve the right every year to renegotiate your access because that mm. underlines that fact of having taken back control. I think also our government here has to come up with a slightly larger quota for British fishermen because expectations in the fishing communities are very, very high. But bear in mind, like in so many areas, the key thing about fisheries 
is that we are interdependent. We sell the majority of fish we catch, we import the majority of fish that we eat. And so it makes sense on both sides to find a solution because it would be in both our interest to do so. Yes, indeed. And I often wonder as well, because the, the British fishing fleet is not what it was uh, many, many moons ago, and it's not as big uh, as, say, the Spanish or the French, um, it may well be that we can't actually fish that much more in terms of the amount that we pull out of the water, but we could charge them more money to, to, to have access to it. There are all sorts of ways of coming to a deal. And you're right, we don't have the capacity to get all the fish out of our waters that we could at the moment. So we're going to have to let some other people in to fish for us. It's worth bearing in mind that, yes, the fishing industry is small. It's politically very, very totemic, though, partly as a result of the referendum campaign. You remember Nigel Farage in his boat on the Thames during that campaign. Uh, And also its productivity and profitability is greater than it's ever been. So there are fewer people doing the fishing but actually their profitability is greater because they've become more efficient. Yes, and talking of Nigel Farage and boats, uh, I wonder whether Boris Johnson will will raise the issue with uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron of the boats that continually come still from the French coast to the English southern coast, uh, full of uh, illegal uh, immigrants, basically. And the French supposedly are cooperating with the British, and Pretty Patel tells us um, that less of them are coming uh, than there were, uh, and that some of them are being stopped from coming by the French. But it's still a problem, isn't it? It is, but it's a long coastline and very hard to police. And remember, the French are bound under their international commitments not to do things that will cause harm to these people. So in many cases, if you have people on a rickety dinghy being approached by a French naval vessel, and those people threaten to throw themselves into the sea if they are boarded, Mm. the French Navy have no option but to escort them because they are bound by the provision of not doing harm. Yes. The question I get asked all the time on this show by uh, by callers is is why is it that they can seek asylum here uh, or come to this country having landed in Europe somewhere else um, and, and not settled there? Well, of course, there is an EU agreement between member states called the Dublin Convention, which means that uh, asylum seekers have to seek asylum in the first state in which they land. But given the scale of the asylum problem that we've of the refugee problem that Europe has faced over the last few years, that's been, let's say, pulled to breaking point. Uh, And even amongst EU member states themselves, there is a real fight going on about whether or not there should be more burden sharing when it comes to migrants arriving in the southern countries. And the Mm. Maltese and the Italians and the Greeks in particular are getting very annoyed with some of their northern neighbours for, as they see it, not doing their fair, not taking their fair share of refugees in. No, exactly right. And lockdown wise, um, tell us what it's been like for you, Anand. I see you've uh, grown a bit of a beard, uh, which is very handsome on you, I would say, without uh, fear of... That's my lockdown protest. (laughs) My beard goes when the barber's open uh, and when I can go to the pub again. Yeah, right. Well, hopefully that will be sometime in the next month, it seems to me, um, unless there's some kind of, you know, second wave problem and, and, uh, you know, it looks as though the government are going to be under more and more pressure to to lift more and more of the restrictions but in terms of um, business what are you hearing from people in terms of uh, the, the businesses that you're in I mean academia has obviously taken a massive hit you know they're all too busy marching around uh, trying to get Peter Hitchens off the streets <laughs> but apart from that um, you know we are kind of feeling like we're getting somewhat back to normal yeah, um, you know, I miss normal, I have to say. I mean, I've, I've had a perfectly nice time. We've got we've got a garden. The house is fine. We get on. So lockdown has been perfectly pleasant. I must mm. say I'm slightly missing getting into London because I'm in Oxford now. I'm very much missing pubs and restaurants and I can't wait for them to open again. I think I'm just about ready to start venturing out again mm. uh, when I'm allowed. But uh, yeah, the economic impact on universities is going to be huge because I think most universities are now 
thinking in terms of doing teaching online for at least the first term of next year. Mm. Then there's the question of whether if you're teaching online, you can charge the same fees, whether students are going to turn up at all, particularly lots of universities in this country are very, very dependent on foreign students. Yes, I was going to say that. Yeah. And they're not coming or at least they're not being told they can come at this point. Yeah, and everyone's expecting a massive drop in the numbers of foreign students. There are some uh, people forecasting a drop in the number of domestic students who, you know, people might think, why should I go to university to study from home for the first term or conceivably longer? Why don't I just go traveling for a year or work for a year, then go to university? So there is going to be a massive hit to university incomes. And we don't know the scale of it yet, but I imagine there are some tough decisions facing those very well-paid heads of universities ahead of them. Yes, I'm sure. Absolutely right. Anna, great to talk to you again. Thanks very much indeed. Anna Menon there, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, talking about the historic ties that we have with France, with Europe. And I'm not talking about, you know, the difference between people who want to leave the European Union or those who want to remain in it. I'm basically talking about the fact that we are a part of Europe. We're always going to be part of Europe. We are not part now any longer of the uh, constitution of the European Union. But, you know, we are all part of the same thing. And to celebrate today and to commemorate what was the French resistance, I think, is absolutely the right thing to do. I'm delighted uh, that for uh, President Macron's visit, they have unfurled uh, all of the protections around the Winston Churchill statue. I'm delighted to see uh, that members of the French resistance who are still survivors of that, some of them up to 100 years of age, are going to be given the MBE. Uh, And I'm also delighted that Boris Johnson and President Macron are going to be talking about a great many things, including, of course, the quarantine situation and very possibly possibly uh, the migration issue as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We mentioned earlier on when we were talking to Alan Menon uh, how keen we both were uh, to get these pubs back open because many pubs in London certainly, and I don't know about the rest of the country, uh, I can't speak for that, but you can obviously out there tell me what's going on. Lots of pubs now are opening for what is described as off sales and uh, takeaway uh, drinks. Now what you can do with an awful lot of them is you can walk into the pub uh, as long as you keep social distance they've got screens up you can buy a bottle of wine or you can buy a pint of beer or you can buy a gin and tonic uh, and you can take that in a plastic glass outside of the, the premises and drink it somewhere away from the pub not actually on the street outside but somewhere across the road in a park that kind of thing and in the good weather certainly last weekend I think the weather was pretty good I was getting reports that London looked as though all the pubs were actually open but let's talk to Emma McClarkin uh, Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub Association because they've now said to the government basically look we need to know when it is that we can reopen we need to know by Friday because we need to know whether we can hire people back into uh, the business and we need to presumably order uh, some uh, stock as well Emma a very good uh, morning to you welcome Good morning, Mike. Yes, we've written to the Prime Minister in an open letter, hoping that he'll get the message that we need to get the pubs reopened and we need the confirmation of the date is the most important thing so that we can, with confidence, bring our people back in and get our pubs ready. Have most of the pubs that that you're associated with put people on furlough? Uh, Have they had to let people go? Um, How many of those are they anticipating being able to bring back as a percentage? Yeah, we've got over 90% of our, our staff in furlough. And of course, we've been working towards the 4th of July since it was mooted as the earliest date that we might be able to be open. And the government knew that we would be then aiming for opening around that date. So bringing back in staff, some of our members have already taken that decision. That mm. means that there is 
a substantial cost already been brought in and already incurred in getting ready for the 4th of July. Of course, if they miss that, there'll be serious consequences yes. um, on top of the other investment that they've made in order to create that safe environment. Yes, and presumably your big bugbear at the moment as well is the distancing. You know, if you can get it, I've talked to very, very many restaurant owners and, and pub owners as well. If you can get it down to one metre rather than two, that's going to make a huge difference. It would make a huge difference. And um, it's very obvious that that is a, a huge significant challenge not only for the pub sector and hospitality but even other businesses as well so if we really want to kick start the economy and getting back to some kind of normality within a safe parameter we need to see that moving down uh, to one meter but critically for our businesses that have been preparing what we need by tomorrow is that date confirmed so that we can brew with confidence that we can order and restock with confidence and not thinking that that's going to be more financial uh, losses mm. to be added up because an awful lot of pubs have said that they've got beer which has gone off uh, which might be sitting in uh, premises at the moment which has to be disposed of as well so there's quite a lot of work presumably to be done uh, before any any pubs can reopen because with some of the ones that that are uh, sort of open for takeaways in london in some cases, you go inside the pub. In other cases, you, you go to a window outside the pub. So it's not clear, really, how much work is required. Yeah, no, it, it is an awful lot. of, And we asked the government for three weeks' notice, which right. would have been last Saturday. So they missed the deadline um, that they said that they were going to keep um, by releasing the guidance on how to set up those workplaces. But we've been working with the government on those guidance. Our members are aware of what they're going to need to have to do. What we really need is the government to just say... The, the guidance that we've had pre-written in our hands for the last week, we're ready now to publish and we're ready to inject confidence to people to move ahead and invest in those mm. um, changes, which will cost some in the sum of £150 million just for the third of pubs to open under two metres, that they can invest in those um, uh, changes with confidence in order to know that their trade will be able to begin to open from the 4th of July. Right. And will there be sort of, or are you expecting there to be regulations vis-a-vis the size of of premises perhaps because obviously you know some pubs are bigger than others some pubs have got more outdoor space than others there are some very small pubs which i'm particularly keen on uh, which presumably will be will be difficult to reopen at the moment each pub will have to do a risk assessment so yeah. every premise in the united kingdom is going to have to do that from doing that risk assessment at the current social distancing at two meters they will understand immediately their viability at two meters as you say some of those small pubs simply won't be able to open and so there won't hopefully be need for further regulation on that because the social distancing actually limits your capacity that you can have already um, by just actually reducing the footprint that you have inside your pub and that's why the difference between two meters and one meters is the difference between one third of pubs opening under two to two-thirds opening under one. Yes. So, but we are preparing, we're risk assessing each venue. Some of that is already taking place. They're understanding whether they're viable at, at two or one and making those preparations, mm. laying out the um, different areas, coming up with new um, uh, flow through the building, monitoring um, the social distancing of the bathroom facilities and looking at extra sanitization being put in and limiting that time that you'll be spending at the bar yeah. interacting with staff, all in the all in a safe um, in, uh, context and in terms of that 
infection control that we're putting yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have said to me, you know, if we can, I mean, aside from the people going to the beaches and going on marches and all of that and having raves, um, all of which are supposedly not being uh, done legally, um, you know, if you go into a supermarket, it's not that different from going into a pub as long as it's not rammed and as long as you're not kind of pressed up against one another. You know, it's pretty easy to sell beer and to sell wine and to sell spirits to people um, in a relatively orderly manner. Yeah, I, I, my members will tell you, you know, we manage people and that's what we do. And in licensed environments, it's the safest environment for people to drink and to drink in moderation. So if you're getting people buying drinks and then drinking them in parks, um, then why not allow them to be inside a safe, licensed, monitored environment where actually we can also make a trade and, uh, you know, give people jobs and contribute to the economy. Mm whilst the people can feel that they are um, also having an experience in the pub that they're missing so much. No, of course. And what about food? Is that a different conversation? Because obviously um, in some pubs there will be kitchens which will be too small to put too many people in, and this is the same problem that restaurants have as well. They say that, you know, we can provide enough space for diners, but what we can't do is bring too many people into the kitchen. Yeah, so some kitchens, as you say, are, are extremely small, and if you cannot add in extra mitigation factors, so that would mean um, screens dividing different workstations or other um, safety measures, mm. then you will have to bide your time and wait for that social distancing rule to come down. But there are mitigating factors put in that people are putting in the back room to give that confidence to consumers. And it's normally to our staff, first and foremost, yeah. I have to say, that they can come back to work uh, and with confidence working in a safe environment. And that's a safe socialising environment that we've worked extremely hard over the three months that we've been closed to make sure we can build back that confidence with our customers mm. and our staff. We want them to come back and feel safe and keep coming back to the pub when we open. Well, listen, we want to come back, trust me. I mean, I, I speak for quite a lot of people, I think I'm, I'm right in saying. What about the furloughing scenario? Because obviously we've heard a lot about um, the government perhaps sort of being a bit more um, agile and a bit more kind of nimble about the way that that might work in the future. If you, for example, have a pub and you've got 10 people on furlough, you only want five back. Will the other five stay on furlough? How will you choose which five? You know, all of that. It is very difficult. And this is what is so pressing about this week is people have had to make the decision about whether to unfurlough great uh, volumes of staff, you know, mm. thousands of people, um, with not knowing whether actually we're going to go live on right. the 4th of July. And that's creating a major problem for us. But flexibility is absolutely key mm. because none of us know exactly how much of that trade will come back. We're hopeful that people will feel that they can come back and feel safe in that environment and contribute to their local economy. But it will take time to build that confidence. We accept that. And so we will need that flexibility to bring our staff in over the time mm. but we first and foremost need certainty that the sector is getting reopened full stop yes and i know a lot of uh, independent brewers have continued to brew beer for example and winemakers have continued to make wine and bottle it um but if, as far as the sort of draft uh, business is, is is concerned for the bigger breweries i presume that's an even bigger problem yeah, no, uh, many of our breweries actually have also been mothballed. They have been on furlough and they've been brought back in to brew to hit that deadline because our breweries, as you may know, actually, might um, take two to three weeks to brew yeah. and lager sometimes even longer. So they've already had to sort of take a gamble and take a, a risk to reopen and start brewing again. But of course, um, the social distancing does have an impact on the, the volumes that they'll be making. So if it's only one third of pubs opening on the 4th of July um, because it's at two metres, then that's a, you know the volumes for, for a third of pubs. But of course, they're almost having to make a guess 
as to how much to brew because, of course, we don't want to run short when we do get open. We absolutely need to open our no. with confidence and with enough beer to keep it to wet our palates. Yes, of course. And finally, Emma, uh, the letter that you've sent, uh, would you be expecting a reply to that today or, or what, what, what are your hopes? Well, we, we made it very clear that we needed to know and have an announcement on the confirmation of the 4th of July by Friday. Mm. So I would love to hear from the Prime Minister. Today, I am open. He has my number. Um, he can call me at any time. But we really need to get that announcement out there to give the confidence, not only to the, the businesses in the pub sector and our breweries, but also to the public to say, yes, you can start to plan going back to your pub. Yes, you can feel confident about that decision. Um, and actually, it will be safe to go back to the pub when we reopen. And I hope that Boris will commit to that on Friday and then come to a pub on the 4th of July and have a pint. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Emma McClarkin, Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub, Beer and Pub Association. July the 4th is the date that everybody has in their head. It would be a great weekend to be able to celebrate uh, American independence, amongst other things, uh, by having a pint of beer uh, or a pint of lager uh, or even some Miller Lite, if that's your thing. It's not my thing, but it's American. This is Talk Radio. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's go straight to Esther Kraku, political commentator, Turning Point UK contributor. She's been very vocal on social media uh, over the past week or so since an awful lot of this Black Lives Matter demonstrations have been going on, since an awful lot of this sort of what you might call cultural uh, reinvention has been going on. And while we still continue to debate uh, the importance of different historical figures, it's time really now, is it not, to say... Where does this all end? Esther, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, I suppose the question is to you, first of all, where does it end? Um, It doesn't. It's just, it just doesn't end. It's something that I don't... I really don't understand where it's coming from. I think it's quite an insidious movement because a lot of these people are operating under the banner of, sort of Black Lives Matter and Black Lives. And I'm like... Well, this is not something that's had a tangible effect on me as a black person in the UK. I don't know many people that can say, as black people, this has really improved our lives. Um, I've been very vocal about the Black Lives Matter movement, the organisation, and it's not some sort of great conspiracy. I thought, you know, there is this movement, people are donating money to it. Maybe I think, by some shock, that posting a black square on Twitter or Instagram is not enough. It's not enough to completely dismantle racism. So I thought, maybe let me go and donate money. I went onto the UK and US website. I saw dismantle capitalism, um, basically destroy the traditional family and a whole bunch of other cultural Marxist nonsense. And I just tuned out. That's literally it. I went to the About Us page on these websites and realized they were not about black people. They were about a completely different agenda. And I've been receiving all sorts of hatred for it. And I just thought, if you're gonna donate money to a cause, you might wanna read about what the agenda is. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, Esther, have been making a distinction, say, between the uh, the organisation itself and those who wish to kind of protest and march uh, because they feel that there is some kind of discrimination going on uh, with people in the black community. And I think it's important to make that distinction because, you know, there are some people who believe very strongly uh, in making this particular point, and in a democracy they should be able to, although I'm not quite sure what happens on Saturday because, of course, the government have said that any gathering of more than six people is now illegal. There's a Black, right, a black Lives Matter march aimed for London London on Saturday. So I'm not quite sure how the police are going to deal with that. Yeah, I, that's another thing I received a lot of hatred for because I did say I was sick of the protest because I personally, I don't see, and I'm speaking in the context of the UK, is the Black Lives Matter movement in the UK protesting in solidarity with the US or are they protesting in solidarity or protesting because of the 13 black people that have died in police custody in the UK over the span of a decade? Yes. But this, this is what I don't understand. And it's like, you're making figures. I was like, no, these are public figures. These, this is what we're looking at. It's, it, I just, I, and for, for me, what I find so offensive is not even people's right to go out and protest. I find it offensive in the context that we're living in the sense that we've been in lockdown for weeks, for months even. We've had people telling us, save the NHS. Uh, the Tories want to defund the NHS. If you don't want to stay indoors, you hate everyone. And yet, you have people that don't realize the scale of the sacrifice we've made as a nation. People have lost their jobs. People have lost their homes. People don't have any sort of financial security. People are completely confused. We've all done this in an effort to contain a virus. And yet you somehow believe that you're so high and mighty that you can gather in tens of thousands, congregate, put all of our lives in danger. And then if something happens, you say Boris killed your man. Yeah. Right. I, I, I don't understand how like Dominic Cummings received all sorts of hell and vitriol for driving up to seek childcare for his child, and yet you are allowed to congregate in the thousands for a cause that I don't even, I don't really see, like I, I'm yet to be convinced that congregating in the thousands is, a, is, is the right reaction for the 13 black people that have been killed in police custody over 10 years. Yes. I mean, I spoke to Gary McFarlane, who's one of the uh, representatives of Black Lives Matters last week. Um, and when I asked him what his aims were, his aims were very specific. He wanted to get rid of the police. He wanted to give the money that the police get uh, to community activists to police themselves. He wanted to see the end of the voting system that we currently use and instead have some kind of local kind of community activist voting, which would apparently rule out any Tory from ever winning a seat. Um, you know, these were the aims of a man who belongs to the Socialist Worker Party. Um, and, and he talks about the endemic racism, the institutional racism, but the aim of the marches, he couldn't seem to tell me uh, what that was because he couldn't really tell me um, what it was that they would achieve and when they would stop marching because they'd achieved it. Exactly. But this is the point. It's not a great conspiracy, right? You just go onto the website and look at what they're saying. Me, me, me being against this movement, and it's very funny because they've, they've kind of, they've chosen a slogan that sounds like it's, you know, going to revolutionize everything and help black people. Black Lives Matter, you know, it's a very catchy slogan. But all you have to do is go to the website and see what they're advocating for. If you donate towards these these people this is this is the agenda that they will be trying to implement you have premier league footballers i don't even know if they're wearing black lives matter on their jerseys like saying the sky is blue as in black lives do indeed matter or if it's in support of this organization but it's important to do that distinction because i personally am not convinced that the reason why tens of thousands of people around the country are marching together in the in the midst of a global pandemic of a disease that's airborne I, first personally i'm not convinced either there's two things either there's 
there, there's some misinformation or there's something the public hasn't been told about the virus or this is a complete farce. Yes. And let's talk about the Cecil Rhodes statue, because rather uh, ironically, it seems to me, um, they are going to remove the statue. I'm not quite sure exactly where it's going to go, um, but they're not going <laughs> to remove the Rhodes scholarship and neither are they going to remove any of the kind of um, uh, the other academic sort of connections that Cecil Rhodes set up all of those years ago. So, I mean, surely if you're going to get rid of the statue, you get rid of the name, don't you? Yeah, this is this is another thing. Uh, and, you know, you notice the kind of people that are advocating for this tend to be sort of white jobless liberals. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, taking down a statue means nothing. I made I made a kind of a devil's advocate point and said, you know, the queen is on the face of virtually most of our money. The British monarchy was the face of the British Empire and all the sort of atrocities that came with it. Wouldn't it make more sense to rip up your money, which you actually can't because all of our bills now can't be ripped? Wouldn't it make more sense to rip up our money as opposed to taking down a statue that does literally that does nothing? I mean, I don't. I lived in um, Bristol for four years. I walked past the Colston statue almost every day. I did not shake, change color, turn blue, have a stroke because there was a statue of a guy called Colston. Like, I'm sorry, but it's it's just ridiculous. If you want to make change or you want to make progress, educate yourself on the history. Don't attack British um, historical and cultural figures and say you're making a change and helping me as a black person. Yes. I find it particularly offensive when it comes to white liberals because the only kind of black people or minority people that they seem to want to defend are the people that, you know, clap and cheer and bark like seals and thank them for the, the kindness of their service to black people. Like, no, we have we all have independent independent opinions. Um, I my only lived experience is my own. I can't say that as a black person, I've lived exactly the same experiences as another black person or there is this collective movement of experiences. It, I, I don't buy into it. I'm an individual first and I'm not about to have white liberals tell me that they're helping me by throwing a, a statue into the ocean. Well, quite. I mean, it's kind of condescending in its own way. And, and seemingly for me, um, I've had it pointed out by a tweet, a tweet that I've just received that uh, while they uh, renamed Colston Hall, it remains on Colston Street. But I imagine they'll probably change the name of the street. But equally, yesterday, I was quite surprised to see the Bishop of Bristol, uh, who's decided now that he's going to remove some of the stained glass windows from Bristol Cathedral uh, because of the connection they have uh, with Colston. And he's going to cover some of the other ones up. It's a kind of new Victorianism, isn't it? It's, it's just complete lunacy. It's complete lunacy. It's idleness that's been brought on by this pandemic. It's completely ridiculous. It's not about black people. And this is what I find particularly offensive because they're peddling off the, the deaths. They're, they're using this movement and peddling off the deaths of, tragic deaths actually, of black individuals in the US, transporting it here in some sort of weird, almost neo-colonial farce and saying this is to help black people. I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. I'm not about to have a conversation about you helping black people and peddling all sorts of nonsense on the back of that. That's not that's not a conversation I'm willing to engage in. There is no point tearing down statues, covering up. I mean, honestly, if you are offended by statues, you have bigger internal struggles to deal with. Well, That's th- my personal Yeah, I mean, I think I've said this many times before in the last few weeks that I think we've reached a point of civilization in this country where we have really literally nothing to worry about. You know, when I was listening to uh, President de Gaulle's speech this morning that he made 80 years ago, talking about Nazis invading Paris, talking about the occupation of Paris, talking about 8 million people uh, who were literally displaced from their homes as the stormtroopers moved in. And you think to yourself, you know, now that's something to worry about. You know, we have nothing to worry about. So now we kind of invent these, um, you know, imaginary offensive uh, things that happen to us. 
Exactly. And I think this is this is the problem with societies, the richer they become, younger people feel that they need to be part of a struggle and then they just latch on to whatever nonsense they can get onto. I mean, I if I stood in London in the middle of this protest and said to one white person, how are you tangibly helping me right now? They would probably just leave because there's really not a conversation to be had there. Well, would and you would you be described as a traitor to your race, perhaps? Oh, yeah, that's that's another thing. So I don't think people understand what they're actually doing when they fund organizations like this, especially organizations that have made their agenda so clear. I've been receiving a wave of vitriol and abuse, especially from African-Americans, actually. They tend to be American, of calling me all sorts of, like, the N-word and coon. And I'm like, first of all, that's not even my reality because I'm not American. I'm not African-American. I'm not a descendant of black slaves that were moved to America. So that's not even unique to my circumstances. That That's that's something that you could use in your own community, but it doesn't really work here when you're talking about a black British person who has African heritage and is something that she very much identifies with and is very familiar with considering I lived there for the vast majority of my life. Um, and also there are bot accounts with two followers, a picture of someone's bum and dollar signs in their name that are sending me all sorts of hate that vanish within 24 hours because they're just accounts that are created to send hatred. There is an actual insidious movement to shut down voices of dissenting opinions. I've been abused, harassed, told that someone, someone to wish that I was barren. I, I mean, it's all sorts of horrible stuff because I said, go onto the Black Lives Matter website and check their about page. Yeah, but it is this kind of left um, obsession, isn't it, with, with what they call identity politics, where people like Priti Patel and, and yourself uh, can't possibly be the victims of racism because you can't possibly imagine what it must be like because you don't happen to be left wing. Exactly. And this is the thing. They're only defending a certain kind of minority. You had Ash Sarko on Twitter saying this is racial gatekeeping. And I'm like, what is your end game? What do you actually want? Are you in it for minorities to thrive and to think for themselves? Or do you only recognize minorities that literally say they're communists and think like you? I don't respect that. I, I think it is insidious. I think it's horrible. I think the fact that The Guardian can put a, a disgustingly racist picture of Pretty Patel online and there was not the kind of... That, that's something I would go out and protest for, yeah. right? But the fact that there is no outrage with that, I'm getting all sorts of abuse for saying, check the about page of an organization you're donating to. And you have people online just completely disregarding my opinion because I'm not the right kind of black person. It's just... I think it's just disgusting. Yeah. And I suppose um, no more ridiculous way to end this conversation, Esther, than to remind you of your tweet uh, to Fiona Onasanya, uh, who seems to be very upset by Rice Krispies and Cocoa Pops. She's she's shouting at cereal. <laughs> like, this, this, this is where we're at. This is a woman who lost her seat because she lied to the police to get out of a speeding ticket. And she's shouting at cereal online. Yeah. Yeah, I pretty much, I guess that sums it all up, really, doesn't it? Yeah, this is the lunacy of the left. Domino's is getting cancelled for a nine-year tweet. Someone is shouting at cereal. They're cancelling Auntie Jemima's um, syrup in the US. I mean, this is this is this is how pathetic they see black people. Yeah. How pathetic. They so, so can you give us any any hope for uh, uh, for some kind of truce here at least? If if we can't see the end of the the craziness and the overreaction uh, to what is uh, the history of the, of this country and many other countries, you know, where, can there be a truce of some kind? Um, I think there can be a truce when people start, stop A, being offended by everything, B, assume that the person you're talking to knows something that you don't know, which is a pretty good principle to live by, 
and just decide to do their own research before they jump on bandwagons on social media or play games of so you think you can work, right? Yeah. I think the fact that I've received abuse, I've become sort of like an almost like an internet meme for pointing out the obvious that is actually detrimental to black communities everywhere is, is quite frankly ridiculous. The positive is I'm never going to stop. I'm never going to be bullied in silence. I, I'm gone in. I have African heritage. I have uncles and aunties and mothers and fathers that roast me all the time. I can take the worst bullets. I don't care. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to sit by and see a, an organization that's peddling, dismantling capitalism and abolishing the police and using black people to peddle that kind of nonsense into society. Absolutely not. Esther, a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Esther Kraku uh, there, who is, of course, with Turning Point UK, a political commentator as well, uh, talking uh, as a black woman, uh, as a black conservative woman, uh, how she has been getting racial abuse from other members of the ethnic minority community because she's apparently saying the things they don't want to hear. Whatever happened to freedom of speech? Whatever happened to democracy? Whatever happened to the way that this country uh, used to be? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, it's time now uh, to learn something. And uh, today's lesson uh, is going to be given by Tom Whipple, science editor at The Times, a man who knows a great deal about a great many things. Uh, and he's going to explain to us how boats float. Now, that might seem strange to you, uh, but I think a lot of people don't know that if you said, if I said to any random number of people on the street, how do boats float? I don't think they can explain it. Let's see if Tom can. Tom, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much again for joining us. Now, this is one of those things that goes all the way back to your childhood when you put your first kind of, you know, little, you know, floating device, whatever it may be, into the pond uh, where you were walking around in the park uh, and you watched it float away uh, to seeing a massive sort of cruise ship sitting outside of Venice and, and kind of wondering with increasing incredulity how it doesn't sink. Exactly. It's a really, really good question. It's some, one of those things that everyone thinks they know. Mm. You think intuitively, oh, I understand how something floats. Um, but there's loads of really important physics in it. Look, I'll confess, I knew I was coming on to talk about this. I started asking questions on Twitter of scientists yes. because I realised bits that I just didn't get. We might, we might not get to the complex stuff. Let's start with the real basics. Mm. So if you're a boat, there's two forces. Um, there's one force, which is your weight. You're being pulled down by gravity if you're a boat. And there's another force that's pushing you up. If you're in the water, there's lots and lots of little water molecules that are bashing into the bottom of the boat. And the deeper the boat is, the harder they're bashing because the pressure is greater. Mm. And they're pushing it up. And that's what buoyancy is. And so the, the, the reason a boat floats is that the weight pulling it down is less than the, the buoyancy, less than what's pushing it up. Right. So it... it goes back up and if, if it's more then it then it sinks and uh there's a really really simple way of calculating this and it's to do with density which I'm, i'll get on to explaining in case it, it's confusing but basically if you've got something that's denser than water it sinks if you've got something that's less dense than water it floats and density is just how many atoms are packed in there so uh if, you, if you've got a little ball of metal well that's that's heavier than a ball of water the same size so it'll sink whereas if you've got a ball of balloon uh that's lighter than a than a than the same sort of volume of, mm. of water float. yes and i suppose that would explain why as a person if you're lying in the sea you're more likely to sink than if you are a boat which has got sort of empty um cabins and and, and lots of air space in, in the middle of it 
Yeah, exactly. But if you breathe in, then you'll probably just about float. I mean, we're, we're basically made out of water, so we're almost neutrally buoyant. But if you breathe out, you'll sink. And certainly if you swallow water and drown, you'll sink. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the reason why the tide, you, you, you hit on it with boats. Boats are made of metals, you think how can metal hold itself up right. but the metal closes air and the reason why the titanic sank wasn't because it had got a hole in it it sank because it took on water and that made it heavier hmm. and when it was heavier it sank into the water right exactly and so as far as the um the the, the distance that the boats go into the water you know we've we all we've all seen the plimsoll line on the side of a boat say for example take an oil tanker if you have an empty oil tanker i presume it doesn't go as far into the water as if you have a full oil tanker no, exactly. So this is where, um, so this is what they talk about as displacements. So if you imagine the volume of a boat that's underneath the waterline, yes, that volume is. If you filled that volume with water, then it would weigh exactly the same as the boat. So it, it's displacing its own weight in the water, and that's uh, it's, it's easier to understand perhaps if you think of an iceberg. We're all familiar with icebergs yes. as being. No, you talk about the tip of the iceberg as being the little bit of the iceberg that's above the water. Well, obviously, an iceberg is water. It's water that's frozen. And water is really weird, really unusual. This is a completely different branch of science. But when it freezes, instead of getting more dense, instead of the atoms getting closer together, they get further apart. And so if you take a little, if you can imagine a meter cubed, a meter by a meter by a meter of water, and it's just floating around in water, it's just being water. And if you imagine you freeze that meter cubed, well, suddenly it's less dense, and the bit of it that's underwater will still be exactly a meter cubed. But as it gets bigger and turns into ice, you'll get this bit appearing above the top because this this uh, water is expanding and mm. becoming, becoming ice. And that, of course, brings us to the dreaded climate change conversation, doesn't it? Because um, if you've got an iceberg and the icebergs are melting, technically speaking, the volume uh, of water should not really increase because if, if you did that in a bathtub and you had say for example a lot of ice cubes in a bathtub if they all melted it shouldn't raise the level of the water should it no it wouldn't at all and it, it won't so so there's there's two things going on so there's there's things like arctic sea ice um which melts every year then comes back um and there's also sea ice in the antarctic that does the same and when that makes melts it, ma it makes absolutely no difference to the sea level because exactly as you say if, if you melt ice cubes your, your glass is still at the same level. But then there's the, uh, the ice on the ice people are worried about is the ice on Antarctica and on Greenland, mm. which is stuck on land. Yes. And if that melts, that, that raises the ice. Yes, I, I, I once uh, proposed a slightly tongue in cheek theory uh, that one of the reasons why the uh, sea levels were rising was because there were actually more boats in it now than there used to be. And I managed to keep that going for about two and a half hours on an overnight show on Talk Sport once with people calling in to disagree with me. But nobody was very <laughs> sure uh, if the fact that you have so many vessels in the in the sea actually raises the uh, the level of it. Well, each each vessel you stick in the sea is going to displace a bit of water and it will raise the level in exactly the same way as you getting in the bath mm. raises the level. I mean, I'm sure you're alive. Quite, not quite as much as that, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Have to be like, I, I think the issue is, to, to, to get slightly technical about it, the sea's really, really big. Mm. You need quite a few boats for yes. it to make much Yes, I think that's right. And what's the significance of the salt? Because we know that salt makes ships more buoyant. So if you're in the river, you're less buoyant than if you're in the sea, I presume. 
Yes, and that's because it changes the density of the, the water itself. So yeah, you've, you'll, you'll probably seen those pictures of people floating in the Dead Sea and being able to read a newspaper because the Dead Sea is so salty. Um, and so they're more buoyant. And so it's exactly that. They're displacing. If you imagine the amount of the boat that's below the waterline, it ha represents that amount of water in terms of weight. Mm. And so if the weight is more of the water, then, yeah, the boat rises higher. Yes. It's a fascinating subject, really, isn't it? And, and I suppose, I mean, does the principle of buoyancy operate in any other field of, of science, if you like? I mean, is it, is it something that you can transfer and transpose into another place? Like, I mean, I presume not into space where, where everything's different. No, but I mean, it, it's, it's why a hot air balloon rises. It's why a helium balloon rises. It's uh, anything that's in another fluid of which air is one, um, you, you, you get this effect. Mm. And, and it, it's, it's really important. It works, what's, it's what makes everything churn around and currents and air flows and everything in the world. Yes, it's fascinating. And as ever, Tom, you have explained it brilliantly. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Whipple, uh, science editor at The Times, uh, a very clever man, a man that we can turn to for almost any answer to any scientific question. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.